this episode of Devotional, an audio spiritual resource for daily living. My name is Ariel and I am your host for this series. And this is episode 2. Welcome back to this series entitled, Jesus Reveals the Eight Paths to Happiness. Before we begin, I wanted to remind you of my previous disclaimer to this series that I am not waiting for the perfect moment to produce these audio resources. So, you are likely to hear my daughters in the background, a washer machine, switching cycles, or maybe a blender making baby food. So, if you're okay with that, I am okay with that too. So, in part one of this series, we were talking about Jesus' first public presentation to all the disciples and to all the masses that had come to hear him. And we read it from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3. And the heart of it, the kernel was when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We learned that in the Greek language, uh, Matthew used the word happy in Greek. And that's what the word, the original Greek word meant in Greek. Blessed, we translate it, but it, it could actually be translated in a more simple way as happy. Jesus knew that all of us, uh, including the people listening to him back then, every human being is pursuing happiness. The American Declaration of Independence uh, highlights this, how the pursuit of happiness is at the heart of every human being. We know we are lacking something, and whatever the absence of that something is, is producing in us unhappiness, restlessness. And we are restless until we find that happiness. We also discovered that this... uh, realization of being poor in spirit um, makes us happy just like me discovering my high cholesterol made me happy because now i knew something i did not know before but that would would have harmed me even if i did not know it was there and so now i could do something and i am doing something about it i am exercising and my wife is helping me a lot with the diet so i'm happy because now i know i need these things and i will not be be careless or think it's not important or it's optional. I know I need because I know inside of me um, I'm prone to poor health because of my cholesterol. In the same way, uh, Jesus says you will uh, need to have a spiritual awakening and you know you've had the spiritual awakening when you recognize you have a spiritual need. But this happiness is not simply about discovering what's wrong inside of me. This idea of being spiritually poor, is even that is a bit abstract. What does that mean? In, in, in a simplified way, it just simply means we, are, we have a bent, a strong bent, towards selfishness and pride. We are very, find it very easy to be self-centered, to think of ourselves first. And so that is the, the manifestation of spiritually poor. It's not what you and I may think or what society may think. That spiritually poor people are people that never frequent a house of worship never go to church or never read the bible uh, that is not necessarily what a spiritually poor person is if a spiritually poor person is someone that tries to love others in with their own capacity or with their own definitions of what love is and i can guarantee you that uh, all of those definitions fall short and actually are a strong manifestation of what jesus is speaking about We are prone to selfishness and pride. 
but like I said, it, this is the, the spiritual happiness doesn't just simply come by discovering all these things that are wrong inside of us. Jesus also points to something bigger than ourselves. The happiness doesn't simply come because we become aware of our spiritual poverty, but because where that leads us to, where that yearning leads us to. And Jesus points our attention to God's kingdom. The happiness is, 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 is fulfilled, it reaches its climax when we become part of God's kingdom, when we yearn and want to be a part of God's kingdom, and we actually enter into it. Um, we need to discover a little bit more about this kingdom of God. Many people have different ideas of it, and I, I love how Jesus simplifies things. If we were to simply read, what does Jesus have to say about this? A lot of confusion would be avoided. If we go to Matthew chapter 6, the very next chapter, and in verse 33, we see Jesus give a pretty broad and yet um, a simple definition of what this kingdom of God is about. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Jesus here uh, continues the thought that he begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when he talks about blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the poor in spirit are no longer obsessed with these things. And if you read a little bit before that, you'll see that is the obsession with what will I eat? What will I wear? Um, how will I provide for my needs? How will I meet all of the, the needs in my life? Jesus called those, uh, summarizes those as these things. And Jesus says all of these things are secondary to something that is primary, something that is most important, vital, crucial in your life. And Jesus says that first should be the pursuit of the kingdom. He could have used the same word, the, but seek first, pursue first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added onto you. Um, the pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the righteousness of that kingdom, is what brings fruits of fullness of happiness. Did you think, do you hear the link that Jesus makes to the kingdom of God? God? God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And here is another word that we need to spend a little bit of time on. What does the word righteousness mean? We hear it, sometimes we read about it, but we never really, I think, have a concrete definition of what it means. Uh, again, if we go to a Greek Bible dictionary, the, the summary definition, the one word definition that we find is righteousness simply means justice. Justice. In the same uh, context, it is usually in the Bible, usually used in the context of a court. When a court gives the sentence of guilty as charged to a criminal. Or when the court gives the ruling of innocent of all accusations uh, to someone that's been falsely accused. This is the context that the Bible mostly uses this word righteousness. It, it, it means justice. Uh, these individuals got justice or righteousness. The guilty got a, the, the, the sentence of guilty. And the innocent got the, the ruling of innocent. They received justice. Or in this case, the Bible would say righteousness. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of justice. Why would Jesus tell us to seek for God's righteousness or his judgment or his justice? Is someone accusing us? Is someone putting the blame on us? 
And if someone is, who is that individual? Well, we want to be spending a little bit more time with that um, in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you this special thought. Would you like to learn the basics of what the Bible teaches in the comfort of your home? There is a resource that allows you to study in your home and at your pace while guiding you through the many wonderful teachings of the Bible. These free resources can be found by logging in at BibleStudyOffer.com. When you log on to BibleStudyOffer.com, you will find an option to select from two complete sets of Bible study guides, totally free. There is no commitment, so you can cancel at any time, and all the free materials are yours to keep. So please, log on to BibleStudyOffer.com today and begin learning the essential teachings of the Bible. It will change your life. So, we need to seek for God's justice, for His righteousness. And justice, of course, in the context of a court uh, court hearing. And uh, usually you go to court when someone uh, accuses you of something, be it a police officer that says you were speeding, that's an accusation, or someone else that takes you to court. And if God is telling us we need to seek for His righteousness, His justice, His judgment, we need to ask ourselves, why? Who's taking us to court? Um, there is a... a a strong uh, emphasis in the Bible for us to do this. Why? Well, because when the Bible talks about justice or uh, seeking God's righteousness, it is because we have someone that it is accusing us. And I'm going to read to you from another part of Scripture. It's called the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. Um, Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 through 10 we will see here who is blaming us because it is not God who is accusing us. It's not God who's taking us to court. Um, it's not ourselves that are going to be defending ourselves in this judgment scene. Um, we are not the ones being our own attorney. It's not our parents taking us to court with God. It, it's definitely not our priest or pastor that is going to be representing us. We need to have these ideas clear so that it makes sense. Why am I happy when I seek for God's righteousness when I belong to this kingdom of justice. In Revelation 12, verses 9 through 10, we read, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, there it is, the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. In this book, uh, this last book of the Bible, which, yes, it has a lot of symbolic language, um, this passage is not very difficult to understand because I think the symbols are interpreted right there. So don't get caught up with this dragon. It's not speaking about a Godzilla. It's simply using symbolic language to point to someone called the devil and Satan. Now, you may think it's two individuals, but it's actually just one. And these are not names. Um, again, it, it, most of the time, it, we have to use some other tools if we want to go a little bit deeper. And a Greek dictionary is a great tool for the New Testament. And devil and Satan are uh, actually not names, but adjectives, things that describe someone. 
and they both mean the same thing, enemy, adversary, or accuser, the one that accuses you, seeking for you to be, get a guilty sentence. Hey, this person is against us. That's why it's called the enemy, your enemy, my enemy. And this enemy has been accusing us before God day and night. But we are told here that because of Christ, um, the kingdom of God has come and the accuser has been cast out, meaning he no longer is allowed to bring a case against those people he was accusing, which is you and I. The enemy, our enemy, is continually seeking to point to our mistakes, to our faults, to our shortcomings, to our spiritual poverty. That's what we're guilty of. We are guilty of selfishness and pride. We do things at times not with others' best interest, but with our own best interest. And those are the most pernicious, the most difficult to identify. Everyone would recognize a, a corrupt politician uh, being spiritually poor. But us that judge those corrupt politicians, are we greedy? Are we taking more than is um, required or that we deserve? Uh, when I go to work, do I take my breaks uh, accurately or do I little, squeeze a little bit of time here or there? Um, do I try to collect more, uh, a, a chart more overtime when I actually haven't so that I get a bigger paycheck? We may not see those small uh, manifestations of selfishness and pride as uh, being equal to what other you know mafia leaders or drug dealers are doing but the principles that guide those behaviors are identical selfishness and pride when i lose my temper when i speak words carelessly because i am angry and i want you to feel pain i want revenge those uh, sentiments those behaviors are pushed forward are motivated motivated by selfishness and pride and the accuser points those out before god they're guilty they're guilty and you have to give them a sentence romans 6 23 tells us that the wages of sin the the, the outcome of sin is death so satan is not simply saying put them in jail just satan is telling god the adversary is telling god you need to destroy them you need to give them what they deserve they deserve death because the wages of sin is death. And so when we're seeking for God's justice, we are seeking for God to respond to these charges. And how does God respond? Well, God is obviously not going to say, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to overlook these mistakes. I'm going to overlook this selfishness or this pride, this corruption, this lust, this covetousness. I'm going to overlook these things, the lies. God doesn't. What God does or what God has done is what the book of Revelation tells us. Um, the power of his Christ, the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. Christ, Jesus Christ, has done something that allows God to be a righteous judge, a judge that judges correctly with justice. He does um, respond to the accusations of Satan. When he, when he accuses of our lies and our loss, etc., what God has done is taken all of that guilt, all of those accurate um, descriptions of our behaviors and the motives behind our behaviors, and he has taken it all. The 
the entire sin of the world he has placed upon Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God was executing his justice. God was uh, placing the sentence, giving the sentence, executing the sentence of ultimate final death upon Christ because of our sins. And because of Jesus Christ's death for me, for you, when received by faith, silences the mouth of the accuser. We have a way to receive justice, correct justice, and at the same time, not receive the death sentence we deserve. And it is because of Jesus. Jesus closes the mouth of the accuser. When I recognize my spiritual poverty, when I look back at my life and see the many, many instances in which I have done things with selfish motives and reaped the results, the consequences. And again, I manifest pride. I, I don't accept it. I blame others. I blame my parents. I blame my spouse. I blame anything and everything. It's everyone's fault. Well, God says that path will never lead you to experience happiness. Yes, there may be things other people have done, but we have done things too. You have done things too. And it doesn't matter what you and I have done. It doesn't matter the magnitude, the size of our sin. The Bible is replete of stories of individuals that were murderers and yet were, were declared to be innocent by God. In the Bible, we have individuals that have committed adultery, that have committed incest, that have committed a, a list. I mean, we're not going to go through all of it, but a list of very gross, dark sins. And to these individuals, God could give them justice by saying you're innocent because someone else has taken your guilt and your sin and the penalty of it, and you don't need to die. So the accuser of our brethren is cast down. You no longer have to listen to the accusations of someone that is accusing you of something that God no longer sees. God no longer uh, wants to be part of our reality. He has made an exchange. I'm going to take a little pause right here. And when we come back, we're going to continue and conclude this thought about silencing the accuser and what that experience looks like. I wanted to take a little break and just read to you a, a, a scripture. Something that would encourage you. I'm going to read from a verse of the Bible that will hopefully add a positive flavor to your life today. And I'm pretty confident these verses will encourage you to trust God even more and, and let you know that God cares for you. I want to encourage you to think about these verses throughout this day. They will be a great source of strength and hope for your journey. I am going to be reading from Lamentations chapter 3 verses 21 through 26. It says this, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, because His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him. 
to the one who seeks for him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So the accuser of us and the brethren of the human race has been cast out because of what God has done through Christ, the power of his anointed one. That's what Christ means. In Hebrew is Messiah, in Greek is Christ. They both mean the same thing, it just means anointed. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, the accuser has been cast out. It's interesting that in the Hebrew uh, economy of justice, um, it's, very, it's different in one crucial aspect. In our judicial system, we have a judge and a prosecutor and a defense. The prosecutor is an attorney, the defense is an attorney, both experts in the law, but the judge surpasses them both, and he's the one that makes the final outcome. In the Hebrew economy of justice, the court system was comprised of that very similar system minus one. You would have the prosecutor, which would be the accuser, and then you had the defense attorney but the defense attorney was also the judge meaning the judge was in your defense and the judge would try to defend you so that when the accuser would come the accuser would have to come with an airtight argument against you because the judge would do everything within his knowledge everything within his power to declare you innocent so the accuser had to do their homework to make sure that you receive the guilty sentence. The, the challenge is, of course, Satan doesn't have to be doing too much digging to uh, point the fact that you and I are very much guilty, very much guilty of the things he accuses us of. And so, by faith, what God does is offers us an alternative. Do you want to have these accusations be about you? Or do you want to receive a, a sentence of innocent, a sentence of innocence and purity and holiness and righteousness that I can give you if you accept my son, if you accept his, accept his life. He has taken your life. He has willingly taken our brokenness, our spiritual poverty, our soiled, dirty garments. He has taken that upon himself. And now he offers us the life that he lived a life of sinlessness. And what that means is a life of complete, continual, unconditional, selfless love. Jesus was continually consumed with a desire to see others happy, others having peace, others having their needs met. That's a life very different from ours. Yet God says, I'll exchange that. I'll exchange the sentence, the sentence that my son Jesus deserves. I'll give that to you. And he will take your sentence of guilty. And that is how um, God seeks to illustrate that your conscience, your guilt, your regrets no longer need to control your thinking, your feelings. God forgives you. I want to read to you a verse that's in, in at the end of the Bible. It's 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2 that says, My dear children, this is the same gentleman that wrote, the same apostle that wrote the book of Revelation. He says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, so that you will not experience a life of spiritual poverty, that you will not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one that is just, the one that has lived a just life, an innocent life, a life that could not be condemned by even one wrong act. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the one. He is the one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. That includes you. So when we look at our lives, we begin to get glimpses of our spiritual poverty, and we begin to realize the depth of how selfish, how self-seeking, and how proud we've been. When someone, we are in an argument, and we are trying to fight our way into being right, and we, we win the victory, and we, we say, yes, now I convince you uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that I am right. And the other person finally uh, gives in and says, you know what, I'm sorry. Now we don't want to forgive that person. We're so angry. We're so proud. We want to hold on to the resentment. We want to make that person suffer and beg and grovel. That is selfishness. That is pride. And that's what you and I struggle with. That's our bent. When we begin to recognize those things, we begin to realize, wow, I am spiritually poor. I don't want to be like this. I don't want this to define me. This isn't something that I'm doing even without me realizing it. It just naturally flows out of me. I don't want this kind of life. Jesus is saying, great, you are starting to experience this journey of spiritually awakening. And the first one is recognizing your spiritual poverty and seeking for the kingdom of God the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom in which the things that we regret, the things we wish we were not, experience an exchange, a supernatural exchange. This is not simply a feeling, oh, I don't, I don't have to feel guilty anymore. No, no, no. God testifies. And of course, we don't have time in, in this short little program to describe the whole experience. We will throughout the series. But it, re it is a real tangible conviction that as, as real and intense as my recognition of my shortcomings, my failures at trying to be loving, as real and tangible as those are, just as real and tangible will be the realization I no longer stand condemned before God. God no longer sees those sins because I have accepted the exchange. I have accepted His justice. And his justice is like this. Satan says, this person, you, you have done this, 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 this things wrong. And God says, that person has accepted the pure and holy life of my son. So I don't see those things because he has accepted, he has confessed his wrongs. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Satan no longer has anything to accuse you of. The past things that we've done, the past things of what we were, is no longer there. What God sees is the life of Christ covering you. And that is what he tells the enemy. The adversary has no accusations because there was nothing in the life of Christ that Satan could point to and say, that was selfish. 
Oh, that, that was pride. No. The life of Christ was exemplified by those two attributes, self-sacrificing love and humility. The very opposite of what we think um, sometimes we are. We're not. And the world does not view these attributes as attractive. Humility is not something that is portrayed as virtuous and glorious and victorious in the movies. No, it's the violent, the proud, the strong. Those are the ones that get the get the, the applause and, and the victories in the end through force. But not the way Christ did it, through meekness, gentleness, humility. So this spiritual journey of blessed are the poor in spirit encompasses a very practical and very real aspect of our lives. The selfishness and the pride that governs us no longer has to because it's not just forgiveness. In 1 John 1, 9, it doesn't say just, and he forgives us, but it also says he cleanses us. If we, if we confess our spiritual poverty, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge it and own it and say, yes, that's me, if we confess it to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. You will begin to experience a change. You will no longer be comfortable being proud and selfish. And you'll begin to notice that your, your desires are, I want to be like Jesus. I want to have his humility. I want to have his gentle responses. When people would provoke and insult him, he responded kindly, respectfully. I want that. I want that to flow out of me. I don't want to simply be respectful because I don't want to lose my job. That's selfishness. I want to be respectful because I am able to love those that don't love me, to care for those that consider themselves my enemies. That is the miracle of grace. And that is what God is offering us to us today. Experience happiness means there's a greater and greater intensity in desiring humility and selflessness and a decrease in wanting to assert ourselves prove ourselves that uh, so that we validate ourselves through our own efforts our own ways we're going to continue this um, progressive revelation of the path to happiness as we continue on to the next ones and i hope that these will help you rethink your life rethink the direction and what is you should be pursuing jesus says seek first god's kingdom and his righteousness, you will begin to experience his righteousness, his peace in your life.